You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. makes you feel like a rock star, you know, that kind of stuff. I go, who is that dude, man? Well, I'm so glad to be able to do this this morning. You know, uh, if I had any sense, I'd be very intimidated after the great teaching that Derek has been throwing down all summer. It's a good thing I don't have any sense. Actually, uh, when we were talking about whether I was going to teach this morning or at the end of October, which will be another opportunity uh, when the slacker wants to take off, um, he reminded me, you know, the, next week we're going to, you know, three services, and I thought, man, I'm, I'm getting mine now, because <clears throat> that three services, that's a young man's game. And then after I hung up, I realized and remembered I'm going to be in Philadelphia next weekend teaching in a church that has three services. <laughs> so man makes his plans and God orders his steps. Um, this is going to be a busy month, October for me. Um, incredible. I'll be in four states. I'll be in Philadelphia, Detroit, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi, and Memphis, Tennessee, uh, spreading the message of the hospital church. And uh, I am so honored to be able to go out around the country and teach churches how to be hospitals and be able to say it is, has been done in Fort Worth, Texas and is being done in Fort Worth, Texas at City on the Hill. And you do not have any idea how blessing, much of a blessing it is for me after pouring my life here for almost 40 years to be able to walk away and carry this message around the country knowing that this body of believers is in better hands than it's ever been with Derek and the staff. And so let's give them a hand. When I was, when I came to know Christ at the age of 18, it was right off of the streets. You've heard that story right out of the drug culture of my teenage years And immediately when I came to Christ, I was told that I should begin to memorize scripture. And I'm so thankful that was one of the first things I heard because I began to do that. And someone suggested a verse that might be good for me to start with. And it was Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which is our text this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A few years after I came to Christ and I'd gone on to college, uh, my hometown, a couple of churches in my hometown, sponsored kind of a, uh, a small town revival. And they invited some of us young preacher boys that were off training for ministry to come back and actually be the ones that would speak. And I was one of the ones that was invited. And I taught that night... On Galatians chapter 2.20. I preached, I would say, on that text. If you could call what I did preaching. Because I was so young in the faith. But over the years, because that was the very first passage that I ever memorized. And I've taught it over and over and over. Each time I do, I delve the depths of the meaning of this text even deeper. Now this morning, I don't have time to go all the way. Because Derek has set the bar so low at 35 minutes for preaching. (laughs) 
uh, that, you know, I've never even done an introduction in 35 minutes, but I'm going to, I'm going to obey, uh, 50 years later than the first time I ever taught this text, I'm going to obey and do my best to do it. You know, soon after I came to Christ and many of you can probably, uh, identify with this, I recognized two truths about the Christian life pretty quickly. And the first one I recognized was that the demands of the Christian life are impossible. In fact, when you think about it, the term Christian life means the life of Christ. It means Christ's life. Now, Jesus was God in the flesh, and he lived his life on earth sinless. And so when he calls us to live his life, when he calls us to live the Christian life, he's calling us to do something that is impossible. It really is. I mean, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he did on the cross. He was praying for those who persecuted him. And he did that, me most often not so much. Uh, Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't worry about anything. Take no thought for tomorrow. Let's be honest. How's that working out for you? I mean, you see what I mean? I mean, we could just spend all morning just going to these places that we are commanded in Scripture, and then we look at it and we measure it against our performance, and we begin to realize very quickly that Jesus has called us to do something that is quite impossible. But because I was saved, born again, my life had been changed, I had my Bible on my arm, and I had my honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on, I headed out to do the impossible. And that was to live the Christian life. Pretty soon, I realized the second truth. My resources are painfully inadequate. It didn't take very long that I realized, you know, I can't do this. I am just not man. I mean, I'm a man, but I'm not man enough to do this. I don't have the resources to do this impossible thing. So for me to live this life with my own resources would be like me waking up one day and deciding that I'm gonna live the life of Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm gonna fly around in my private jet, I'm gonna live in luxury, I'm gonna travel the world. And there's immediately a problem then that I would come up against and that would be, the well, I can't do that because I don't have the resources to do that. I can say I'm going to do it, but when Rubber meets the road, I can't do it because I don't have the resources that Elon Musk has. And the Christian life is the same way. I find myself on this horns of dilemma that Jesus calls me to do what now I've come to understand is impossible and that I don't have the resources to do. So I begin to ask, what is this Christian life anyway? Is there hope for me? What am I supposed to do? How can this possibly be done? And I come back to that first verse of scripture that I ever memorized as a new believer in Christ, Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, that verse really is an explanation of the impossible life. It is an explanation of the Christian life for which we in ourselves do not have the resources. And so in the next 25 minutes or 25 hours, <laughs> let's look at it. First of all, Paul tells us in this text that the Christian life is an executed life. He says, I have been 
crucified with Christ. Now, we know that crucifixion was a Roman death penalty. They put the worst criminals to death by crucifixion. It was an execution. And Jesus then was executed. Jesus was crucified. And the scripture says that when I begin the Christian life, when I decide to follow Christ, when I fall on my face before him and receive Christ as my savior, then I decide to be crucified. I mean, why not? What good is my life anyway? I've already proven that I can't get this thing done. Now understand that when scripture speaks of this crucifixion for us, we know what Jesus' crucifixion was. It was a one point time in history, physically crucified on the cross. But when the New Testament speaks of our Christian, our crucifixion, it speaks of it in two verb tenses. First of all, it speaks of it as a, an actual past event. You see, Paul didn't say, I will be crucified. He said, I have been. This is an accomplished event. I, it is an actual thing that has taken place. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, when was Paul talking about? Well, obviously, he was talking about that Damascus Road encounter that he had with the resurrected Christ. He was on his way to Damascus to, to persecute Christians, and the risen Christ appeared to him on there, brought him to his knees, and in that moment in time, he realized, oops, I got this thing wrong. He really was a Jewish Messiah. He really is. I better get my act together. And he committed himself to Christ. In that moment in time, that's the time that Paul is talking about. I was crucified with Christ on the Damascus road. And every Christ follower since that time, when you came to faith in Christ, God transacted an execution. He transacted a crucifixion. You see, what Paul's talking about, in that moment in time, I died to the penalty of my sin. And it was that very sin for which Jesus died. So Jesus was crucified for my sin, and when I came to him in that faith transaction, my sin and I was crucified on that cross. And everyone who has ever come to know Christ has experienced that crucifixion, whether you knew it or not, whether you understand it fully or not, because it is a transaction that God himself is involved in. So my crucifixion, my execution, was an actual transaction that the Father carried out when I trusted Christ, and the same for you. So, first of all, what do we got to do? We got to check, well, have I been crucified? Have I really been crucified with Christ? Have I really come to know Christ in the way that Paul did, where it was a life-transforming experience? Have you been to that cross? That is the first thing. You may be doing something that even Jesus can't do through you because Jesus is not yet in you. Have you been crucified? And I'm not talking about just having walked an aisle. I can't tell you in 45 years as a pastor how many people I talked about. And I said, well, you know Christ. And I said, well, I walked an aisle when I was so-and-so and I got dunked in the baptistry. And I said, that's not even what I was talking about. And by the time I got through sharing the reality of what it meant to know Christ, they said, well, no, I guess I really haven't. And they, and they did. And they were crucified. So we're not just talking about going through a ritual. We're not talking about being dunked in a baptistry. If you weren't saved, you might as well have just taken a bath. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ when your sin is nailed to his cross. It's an actual past event. But it is also a daily appropriated experience. In Galatians, Paul says, I have been 
crucified with Christ. But then he goes on later as he's writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, and he says, I die daily. Now, wait a minute, Paul. What's up with that? You died on the Damascus Road, and now you're saying that you die daily. What is he even referring to? He's hearkening back to the teaching of Jesus, who, who, by the way, Paul never even probably met. Paul came along a long time after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and, but he understood the teaching of Jesus because when he came to faith, the, whole, the Lord brought that to him. And so he's hearkening back to the words of Jesus in Luke 9, 23, where Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, Jesus was talking about a daily crucifixion. See, the Christian life, folks, is not only a past crucifixion, it's not only a past actual event, but it is a daily event for the Christ follower. Now, once again, let me say, that doesn't mean that you have to become a Christian again every day. That's once and for all when the penalty of your sin is nailed upon the cross. But what he's talking about today is now is daily appropriating the reality of that actual past event of dying with Christ. The desire today to get up and be crucified to myself again. To be crucified to my way. To be crucified to my will. And today live the crucified life. Romans 6 verse 11, Paul speaks to the Roman church when he talks about how we have died with Christ. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that sounds kind of contradictory. Consider yourself to be dead, but alive. In biblical theology, it's not contradictory. You see, what Paul is talking about there is not just about dead to the penalty of our sin, that's once and for all. He's talking about bed, dead to our, its control that day, that day, that day, daily. I make the decision. I make the choice to be crucified today, to take up this cross today and live as a dead person. I love the word in the original language here in this verse. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. The word consider in the original Greek text is actually an accounting term. It's a word that the ancient Greeks an accountant would use when he says, look at the books, consider, reckon. Okay, let's balance the books here. Look at the ledger, look at the balance sheet, and what does it say? It says, I have been crucified. Now Paul's saying daily, look at the ledger, open the books, what does it say? It says, I have been crucified. What does that mean? It means I'm a dead man. So what must I do? I must choose to live like a dead person every single day. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? So when we look at the books today, we have to look at the books. Okay, what does it say? He said, I'm dead. He says, I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to the penalty of sin. So today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take up that cross and I'm going to live like what I am. I'm a dead person. Dead to self. Dead to will. Live like a dead man. The point is, folks, what I'm trying to make, you go, James, come on, bring this thing in and land it. Okay, I'm going to. Don't get your underwear all wadded up. The point is the Christian life begins with a crucifixion, folks. It's an execution. It's a declaration of death. God signed the death certificate. 
He's declared it. So then I must then daily redeclare that today I'm not going to go out living like a live person. I'm going to live like a dead person. Which leads us then to the second thing. That sounds contradictory, but the second thing about the Christian life is it's not an executed life, but it's an exchanged life. Because the verse goes on and he says, okay, after we've established this crucifixion, it says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. To understand the Christian life, you have to, first of all, understand the doctrine of substitution. Okay? Christ died not for his sin, but for mine and for yours. Do we get that? Give me the Sunday school answer. Say, Jesus. His death, then, was a substitutionary death. He died as a substitute for me because, you see, it was me that had the penalty of death upon my head. I should have been crucified. So Jesus comes as a perfect substitute and substitutes himself on that cross for me to pay the penalty for my sin. In fact, that concept was the basis for the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. People say, well, why through the Old Testament did God have his Hebrew people killing all these animals and pouring out all this blood and burning all this flesh and all that kind of stuff? That sounds kind of stupid and kind of barbaric. No, God was sending a message This is how it's going to happen. And so the cross of Christ was built upon the foundation of all of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. And what was it? It was the innocent dying for the guilty. And so we come then to the time of Christ. We come to Jesus and Jesus is that final sacrifice on that cross. But Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus took it one step further. Because in the Old Testament, every time a sacrifice was offered, the sacrifice was dead and stayed dead, right? And none of the sacrifices didn't get back up and go, going back out to the flock. I mean, they died. In fact, a lot of times they were eaten. The blood was poured out on the altar. I mean, there was nothing left. So Jesus, the final sacrifice, doesn't stop there with offering himself as a substitute For the penalty of sin, Jesus then rose from the dead and the scripture says he ever lives for us. He ever lives now. What he wants to do is live through me and live through you who are crucified, dead people. So there's a second substitution that we have to understand. Jesus substituted himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Now he wants to substitute his life living in us and through us for you and for me. Are you hanging here? So let me give you this. He substituted his life for us, for me, that he might substitute his life in me. Let me say it again. He substituted his life for me that he might substitute his life in me. Now, remember what it is that we're supposed to live, what we're called to live. We're called to live the Christian life. We're called to live the life of Christ. Christ is the only one that can live his life. No one else can. So, now add to that last statement I gave you one more little little word. He substituted his life for me that he might substitute his life in me that he might live his life through me. 
So the Christian life is an executed life, but also it is an exchange life. I must die daily. I must get up daily and say, today I'm going to hang myself on a cross so that Christ can live through me, a dead person, live his life. Not my life. Live his life, the Christian life. Live that through me. Now, I'm not very good with illustrations, but I came bearing gifts this morning. And it's so old that for some of you young scallywags, it's brand new. I love stuff. You know, it comes around long. I wish I still had some of those bell bottoms. They're worth a lot of money now. You know the old glove illustration? The glove itself, you know, has no life in it. So how many of you heard have seen this illustration? Okay. See, if you're over 40, you probably have. You know, the, the glove has no life in itself. But when the hand goes in the glove, then the glove... Looks like it's doing things. You know? It's not really doing things. What's doing it? It's the hand in the glove. It's doing it. And so the supple, soft glove that has no life. It's just you know, a floppy glove. But then the hand comes in and all of a sudden that glove can do all kinds of wondrous things because the hand is doing it through the glove. And the glove obeys. The, glo the glove lets go. The, the glove lets the hand do what the hand wants to do. That's the crucified life. Life of Christ living through. But then there's the other side of this thing. Now, I don't have any gloves that look like this because this looks like a glove that's been worked in and I don't work. <laughs> I mean, Fleming calls me the blister. I show up after the work's done. <laughs> now look at this. This is a problem, isn't it? Is this glove yielding to the hand? I mean, you know, if, if I force the hand in and then I get stuck and, and it's all stuck together, this glove's not working. It's not working out for me. So what does that mean? It means because the glove is resisting the hand, the hand can't do what the hand wants to do. You get the picture. One glove is soft and supple, is yielded because it recognizes it can do nothing. And so the hand easily goes into that glove and the hand is able to accomplish what it wants to do through the glove. The other one is old and crackly and crinkly and, and, and stuck and it will not let the hand move through. So the hand is not able to do what the hand wants to do. You see, that's, that's me on the day when I decide I don't want to be dead today. I don't want to be crucified today. Nope. I'm a living today, the life of James. And that is not a pretty sight. And the, so the hand is unable to accomplish its purpose. But the, the crucified life, the day that I get up today and I say, I do, I, I die on this cross today. I want to live out as a dead person. And the hand is able through the day to every now and then accomplish its purpose. Here's the question. Here, here's the real question. Am I yielding or am I resisting? That's the question of the Christian life. Okay, I, I've, I've been executed. It's a past event. And, but is it, a, is it an everyday decision? So that then what? I can live the exchange life where the hand of Christ can come in and because I have no life, and have declared I'm dead and declared I have no life, I'm not trying to compete with the hand today. And the hand then is able 
to accomplish his purpose. So here's the picture. The Christian life, this impossible life, this life for which we do not have the resources in ourselves is an executed life. It's a crucified life. It's an actual past event in Christ. Penalty of sin paid for. Then it is a daily appropriated experience. There's a daily decision. And then it's an exchange life. When I crawl up on that cross that day, then Christ now who lives in me can begin to live through me the way that he wants to do. And then we come to the last point, which is, that means the Christian life then is an empowered life. And at this point, it all begins to come together. It begins to make sense. It begins to make this very practical. Because Scripture is very practical. God calls us to do what he always provides the means by which it can be accomplished. And so at this point, he recognizes that there is something that must be tapped into in order for me to make these choices and these decisions. And we're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit here, although the Holy Spirit is the one that ultimately is energized. We're going to go one step past, one step before the Holy Spirit's power. And we're going to get to the question of faith. Because he goes on in the verse, Galatians 2.20, the very end, he says, And the life now that I'm living in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, the word flesh is used two ways in the New Testament. You need to understand them. Sometimes it's just speaking about this human body, the human anatomy, the flesh and blood. Sometimes it's speaking about the old sin nature, the flesh nature, that which is we're all born with and wants to rebel against God and wants to live its own life and wants to have its own way and its own will. In this particular text, that's not the part of that's not the flesh Paul's talking about. He's talking about the physical body. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, right here, right here on terra firma, right here on earth. This physical body, I'm living my living life through this physical. I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for me. So here is how to understand this. Though we live in the flesh, we are not to live according to the flesh. Now I used the word flesh in both ways, didn't I? We live in this flesh, this physical body, but we are not to live according to the flesh, which is that sin nature within us that still battles with the spirit and the desire to be obedient. This life in the flesh is to be lived by faith. And it is that faith that releases all that God has in us and through us. Now, let's bring faith back to earth. Can we, for a moment? All you folks that listen to Christian television, turn it off for just a minute. What is faith? Derek, in 38 years, they learned one thing. That's all you need to know. If you don't learn that one, everything else you learn means nothing. But if you can learn that one, everything else becomes opened up. Faith is not something I dream up and then by believing it, make God do it. That is heresy. Who is God in that equation? It's me. I've left my notes now. I've started preaching, so I've got to get back. <laughs> I become God, and that's what the flesh wants to be, isn't it? 
The flesh wants to be in charge. So we have for us a definition of faith being preached today that gives me control. That puts my flesh in the lead. Yes. Well, you can make God do anything you want to do if you just believe. That is heresy. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is not me dreaming up something and forcing God to do what I want him to do. Faith is me hearing what God has said and yielding myself in obedience to that. In Romans 1.5, Paul speaks about the obedience of faith. Faith obeys. Faith is obedience from the heart. My faith means I'm charged to live an impossible life that I don't have the resources for. So Jesus is going to have to live his life through me. So what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to live by faith. I'm going to have to look at what he has said and yield myself to that. Take him at his word. Will I walk by faith or will I walk according to the flesh? If I refuse to take God at his word, then when it all blows up in my face, I can't blame him for it, can I? But that's what we do, isn't it? You know, I made all these bad choices, all these faithless choices, and then it all blows up in my face. God, why did you do this to me? He didn't do nothing. This is my baby. I got to own it. I don't mean literally my baby, but you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it is. I can't blame God. Faith is the empowerment of this impossible life that I don't have the resources for. Because it is faith that releases Jesus to do what he wants to do through me is live his life. And this is tough because it has to be an executed life. And it has to be a daily execution. It has to be this exchange life. It's his life that he wants to live through me. And the empowerment of that is when I quit wanting to do it my way. And I say, I don't have all the answers. I don't know the steps. But I know you know the answers. I know you know the next step. I don't know where this thing all ends. But today, I'm going to take you at your word. And just trust that you, the sovereign God of heaven and earth have figured this thing out that I can't figure out. Today, Lord, I want to be the glove. And I want you to be the hand. And I don't understand what it is you're going to do, but I yield to that. Now let me close with very practical applications by giving you some statements. God can do anything, folks. I've been on board 28 minutes, and I'm fixing to wrap this puppy up. This is the life of faith. <laughs> Obeying the young pastor, Derek. Okay, here it is, real quickly. Jesus addressed the eternal penalty for our sin in his physical body by his death as our Savior on the cross. Pretty straightforward. We understand that. Jesus now addresses the temporal pain of our suffering as our shepherd through his life in the spiritual body, the church. You see, Jesus had a physical body, and that's where he was crucified. Now Jesus has a spiritual body. And where is that? It's us. It's in me. It's in you. 
Now get this. This is my law school training. I'm just, I'm setting up the argument before you have a chance to even give your objections. If we are his body, which we are, New Testament clearly teaches that. When we minister to one another, it is Jesus, the shepherd, the great physician, doing it. It's not me. Why? Because he's commanded me to do the one another's, hasn't he? His word has given me the one another's. How many of them are there, folks? About 26 or 27 one another's in the New Testament. Love one another, pray for one another, support one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. These are the one another's. He's told me to do it. He says, you go out and you want another. So when I am in the process, of one anothering and be allowing myself to be one anothered? Who's doing that? It ain't me. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Are you with me here? I'm trying to make this very practical. He told me to one another. So when I want another someone who needs an encouragement, when I want another someone who needs someone to come alongside them because of their brokenness and help bear their burden, it is not me that's doing it. It is Jesus because I've decided, okay, you, you said this. I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm going to do what you said to do. I may not feel like one another today. I may not feel like carrying part of that burden today. But, Lord, I've died today. Today I decided I was going to be crucified. And, and so you have put this opportunity. So I'm going to one another, Father. You know what I'm doing? I'm living the Christian life. Because if I am his body now, if we are his body, when we obey him, it is he that is doing it. Here's the last statement. If you aren't involved in the ministry to one another, is Jesus really living through you? See, this is the message that I take to pastors and church leaders all over America now as I talk about the hospital church. How much is your church really structured to do the one another's? When an alcoholic is struggling with alcoholism, somebody in the body who understands that can, can one another them and come alongside them and take them by hand. A survivor of childhood sexual or physical or emotional abuse who's struggling with the, the pain and the, and the destruction of that now in their adult life, is somebody willing to come along and one another that person? Do you have a structure to help your people one another? That's what a hospital is, isn't it? That's what a hospital church is. And here's my question. Some of you have not even tapped into the one another ministry here. You show up for this incredible worship time. Great fellowship. Okay, preaching. And then you go home. Are you one anothering? Are you, are, we do that in the freedom group ministry. That's, that is strategically a structure to allow Jesus to live through you to one another. To come alongside somebody that needs someone to come alongside them. He said do it. 
Are you willing to do it? Will you get up today and say, I today will be that supple glove to let the hand of Jesus work through me, even though I don't have the time, even though I don't have the patience, even though I don't even sometimes have the desire. I will walk by faith and obey you. You see, this is what makes the hospital church work. It doesn't work with the staff. Mm -mm, not enough of us. It works with you. Because all of us don't have the life experience that we need for someone who walks through that door the next week. Not all of you have been drunk. So a bunch of you have, but not all of you. <laughs> you know what I mean. But you've got your own stuff, right? That's the one another. That's an illustration. And so in every area of our life, as we look at what God's word says, I say today, I want to be that empty glove. I want to be that supple glove that's not resisting the hand. And so this is what he says. I don't fully understand it. I don't know where it's going. But today I have died on the cross. And so I am going to walk by faith and obey. You're living the Christian life. You're not. He's living his life through. Amen? Amen? Let us pray. How we bless you and honor you, Father, for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. For the one another's that we all need. And for those one another's that we can get. And give freely. And give to honor you. And to give you credit. And to look in the mirror and to say, as I came alongside that person today who needed someone to pick up part of the load, Jesus, thank you for doing it. Thank you for living the Christian life today through me. This is our prayer. In the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus, amen. So, 35 minutes. Old dog, new tricks, am I right? <laughs> Mangy, mangy dog. <laughs> Church, He's a great teacher. George, if you uh, if you would commit to praying um, this next week as James travels to Philadelphia to do the work he's doing, he is, uh, as he said in the beginning, he's taking the message of help, hope, and healing and bringing it to churches that desperately need it. I was reading uh, this uh, book that I highly recommend to everybody. You've heard me talk about it a lot from the stage the last few weeks called The Great Dechurching. And uh, there's a chapter in that book that deals with the category of individuals that are, are called, we refer to them as ex-evangelicals. You've probably heard this term. Um, this, this demographic is a, a demographic that's actually not well represented online. We think of kind of the young, tech-savvy, well-spoken uh, individual in this category. Um, the, the demographic is actually um, a, a single, mid-50s, often divorced woman. And the story in this particular book with this particular case study that they did, uh, she was a woman who was married to a man who was uh, abusive and alcoholic. And, I, and something struck me this week as I was reading it. The note in it said that the reason she left was because the church that she attended would not give her counsel and would not permit them to utilize the 12 steps because, quote, unquote, all you need is the Bible. And while he continued to beat the life out of her, she finally mm. left him. And, and uh, because of a, a host of other issues, will not return to church now because the church failed to protect. 
uh, the church failed to do the job that the body is intended to do. Amen. So when we say that this, this work of help, hope, and healing is necessary and needed, it's desperately needed. What we have here is so unique and so different, and, and we want other people to have the help, hope, and healing of Jesus as well. And so would you commit to praying for James this week as he goes? As he said, October is a busy month. Um, and then, of course, uh, last but not least, by way of reminder, one last time, so that you are without excuse. <laughs> 8, 9, 30, and 11. I that sounds like a here. biblical statement. You it does. Without you excuse. are without excuse. Yes. <laughs> Invite a friend. We're going to be starting the Gospel of Mark, and it's going to be a wonderful journey into the life of the earthly ministry of Jesus. God bless Amen. you. Amen. See you next time.